Turn with me now to Matthew chapter 24. Now, uh, this could be an interactive uh, message today. I, I'm not. I'm going to stand up and get down and not get down like boogie, but just. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I, that, my vanilla ice hair is gone in the 90s. <laughs> no joke. <laughs> What are you laughing at, Jesse? I saw you here a few years ago. Nope. Totally. Okay. So my purpose is to interact with you, and uh, I'm sure I'll do most of the talking. <laughs> but um, and many of your questions might get answered in a future sermon because this is going to be more than a part one. This is going to require at least a part two. Um, so I'm just going to cover today uh, the, the main the main points of history. And we're going to go through Matthew 24 to help us through this in a second, uh, starting in verse, uh, uh, where is it now? Verse 4. But what we have here is the history and warning signs. Uh, we see that in verse 4 of Matthew 24 4. He says, uh, For many will come in my name, saying, I'm the Christ, and they'll mislead many. You will be hearing of wars and rumors of war. I see that you are not frightened, for those things must take place, but that is not the end. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and the various Places that we found in earthquakes, but all these things are really the beginning of birth pangs. So what we have in the past history, the disciples' time, and our history coming in the future are these warning signs that we're going to have, you know, these, these wars and rumors of wars, we're going to have nation rising against nation, we're going to see famines and earthquakes, and we're going to see people claiming to be Christ that aren't Christ. And we talked about this last week in detail, so I'm not going to repeat those things, but these are the, the past the, the history and the warning signs that are present uh, through these verses. But what's interesting, which we've never talked about, is that even though we see earthquakes and famines and all these wars and different things happening on, what we're going to see before the Antichrist comes, before the Antichrist comes, we're going to see the reemergence of the Roman Empire. We're going to see a reemergence of the Roman Empire and we're going to see a one dominant, the one dictator who's going to be head of that Roman Empire. He will be a leader that will rise to power with the goal of world domination and elimination of Israel, and he will kill anyone who won't worship him, and his focus will be the Jewish people and the Christians. His name is the Antichrist, in the, he's called the Prince who is to come in Daniel 9.26, he's called the Little Horn in Daniel 7.8, and he's called the Beast in Revelation 13.1. <coughs> So if you run into words like the prince who is to come, the little horn, the beast, it's the same person is called the Antichrist. Now he's described in Matthew, in verse 15, as bringing the abomination of desolation. Look at that there. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which is spoken of through the Daniel prophet, standing in the holy place, let their reader understand, those who are in the Judea must flee to the mountains. They must flee to the mountains. So what we have here is this, in, turn, uh, in terms of a timeline, we have the famines and earthquakes and wars that we see now, which are happening in our time. People claiming to the Messiah, we haven't seen a lot of that maybe recently, but we do have that in the past. But in, uh, the Antichrist will show up, and uh, he will set himself up here, as we see in Jerusalem, because he will be in Judea. <coughs> now... Matthew gives a, um, a kind of description of what this guy is going to be like in verse 17 through 22. He says, Whoever is on the house that must not go down to get the things that are in the house. Whoever is in the field must not turn back to get his cloak. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babes in those days. 
for predator flight will not be in the winter or on the Sabbath, for then there will be a great tribulation such as not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Unless these days have been cut short, no life would have been saved, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. What's interesting is you see this guy, Jesus is saying this guy is going to be so brutal in his reign that, that won't, you know, flee, flee, flee. Like, if you're in Jerusalem, get out, run to the hills, and uh, it's going to be a terrible, terrible time. There's more descriptions of what he's going to be like in other parts of the Bible. But there, there are, well, you can see also that his time for here is referred to the time of great tribulation. The great, great tribulation in verse, uh, where is it now? Uh, verse 21. Now this tribulation period when the Antichrist takes rule is seven years long. It's seven years long. And we're going to look at this in a second, but it's found in Daniel 9.27. It tells us his reign will be seven years. So the history and these warning signs, they're going on for generation after generation. When the Antichrist comes to power, it'll be seven years and the world will be, as we know it, will be completely radically changed. Um, it, at the end of the seven years, after the tribulation, Armageddon is like this third world war that's going to be worldwide, and uh, there'll be destruction of the Antichrist at that time. But here's what we need to know, church. If we, if we really look at the history of warning signs, are there any signs today, or is there any way of us knowing when the Antichrist will come to power? Well, we know this, and I'm going to suggest that we will. If we're alive at this time, we will know when he comes and we will be able to recognize him. And for that, we have to turn to Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2. So Daniel's in the Old Testament, and he's not, he's one of the, one of the last books, <coughs> pretty close to the end. So Daniel chapter 2, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, who's the king of Babylon, has had a dream, and he has this huge statue come, come to him in this dream. And he's, he just, he's completely terrorized by this vision. He doesn't know what to make of it. So Daniel, who's in <coughs> captivity in Babylon, has come to his aid to interpret the dream. And he, there's a head of gold, arms of silver, belly of bronze, legs of iron, and feet of iron and clay in chapter 2. And Daniel explains to him that the, the head of gold is Babylon, Medo-Persia is the arms of silver, uh, bronze is Greece, and iron is Rome. And he tells them that all of these are going to rise and fall, and they're eventually going to be conquered by another empire, which is, which is going to be the Millennial Kingdom, which is Christ. These things all occur in chapter 2, and you can read that on your own at some point. But here's the thing, friends. Uh, history shows that this has actually come to pass. Uh, when Babylon was in power, it came to, it fell, and the Bible records this history as well as other books, Babylon fell to Medo-Persia. And interestingly enough, when the Jews were in exile and were allowed to rebuild the temple and rebuild the walls, Medo-Persia was in power. That's why King Cyrus and Darius were there, granting the Jews uh, this permission to rebuild the temple and the, and the, and the city. Then after that, the Greece came in and took out Medo-Persia. And we see that in Alexander the Great. And all of you have heard of Alexander the Great, maybe you've seen the Hollywood movie version of him, but it's, it's a no, well-known fact that uh, Alexander the Great took over the world. And that's why when we refer to Hellenistic Jews, remember in the Riddle Crisis, there were Hellenist Jews and native Palestinians? Hellenistic Jews referred to people who had been affected by Alexander the Great's rule. They were, they were um, 
under, they had learned the Greek language, maybe come under Greek influence in terms of the culture, but they lived outside of, of Jerusalem. So these Hellenistic Jews were, were was a result of Alexander the Great's conquest. But then Rome came in and took out, um, took out Greece. So his, we know from history, from the Bible and other sources, that this is true. But what's interesting about Daniel is he predicts a fifth world empire, one that hasn't occurred today. And for that, we've got to turn to uh, 242. Look at 242. It's the reemergence of Rome. He says, as the, toes, as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of pottery, so some of the kingdom will be strong and part of it will be brittle. And in that you saw the iron mixed with the common clay. They will combine with one another in the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, even as iron does not combine with pottery. Now, it's not clear here that Daniel's speaking about a future kingdom. But when you look at chapter 7, verse 26 and 27, you're going to see that this is a future kingdom. A future kingdom. How do we know? Because the one that's going to come after it is going to destroy it, which is referred to as Christ's kingdom, the millennial kingdom. Look at 26 and 27 with me. It says, But the court will sit for judgment, and his dominion, this is the Antichrist, will be taken away, annihilated and destroyed forever. The so then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all the dominions will serve him and obey him. So in this context of 726, he's saying Christ will defeat this Antichrist. And so we know that when he's speaking in Daniel 2.44 about this, this iron mix of clay kingdom, it's a future kingdom. It's nothing that happened back then. Um, and plus, history shows there's never been a, a, a kingdom that had sort of ten, it says ten toes, there's never been a kingdom that had sort of ten rulers uh, organizing at once. There's always been one dictator ruling a nation. So again, it's not clear here in 2.244, but Daniel's speaking about a future kingdom, the reemergence re of, of Rome. And what will that coalition be like? It'll be a coalition of ten kings. Again, this is confirmed in Daniel chapter 7. He describes four beasts there, and he describes a lion, bear, leopard, and that again refers to Babylon, Medo-Persia, and, and um, uh, Greece. But he says there, there's going to be a beast with 10 feet crushing everything, so 10 feet back to 244, these 10 toes mixed with iron and clay. And then he says, and 10 horns emerged from it, and one, uh, 10 horns emerged from this, uh, or 10 horns are on this uh, creature, and one emerged from amongst the ten and rose up from amongst the ten. And look at 7.23 with me. Look at 7.23 to get a description of this. He says here, The fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which will be different from all the other kingdoms, and will devour the whole earth and tread down it and crush it. As for the ten horns out of this kingdom, ten kings will arise, and another will arise after them, and he will be different from the previous ones and will subdue three kings. Here's a point again, church. He says, as the ten horns, ten kings will arise. Daniel wants you to understand that these ten horns are actually ten kings. So this, this new coalition, this Roman Empire is going to reemerge. It's going to be a coalition of ten kings or ten, uh, ten kings ruling this whole empire. And then the Antichrist will emerge from amongst these ten kings and dominate the, and become the world dictator. Now, if this is to be true, the question is this. Is there anything in our world today showing the table being set for the rebirth of the Roman Empire? The answer to that is yes. 
the European Union. The European Union. And, and after World War II, in 1945, Winston Churchill, who was the, who was the president or prime minister of um, Great Britain, stated that the path to European peace and prosperity was to build a United States of Europe. See, after the war, because Hitler could come in and just take over so easy, Winston Churchill thought part of the problem was we weren't united, so when he came in, we were just completely like dominated. And he thought the answer will be to unite Europe to prevent this ever happening again. Well, guess what happened after, in 1945, he made that declaration. In 1957, the Treaty of Rome, Treaty of Rome was signed. And Luxembourg, <coughs> Netherlands, Belgium, Germany, Italy, France, six countries formed the EEC, or the European Economic Community. It proposed to create a single market for goods, labor, services, and capital across the EEC's member states. And now today, it's called the EU, and currently has 27 countries in total. And according to David Jeremiah, this pastor I listen to fairly frequently, said that in 1992, a common passport was issued to travelers to go between all the countries. And in 2002, they introduced a common currency called the Euro. It's interesting today that Iran does not use US dollars to buy oil. They use the Euro. And Iran is going to be one of the major players set up against Israel in the end times. It's the European Union is considered the second most powerful economic influence in the world next to the USA. And you can see what's happening to the USA. It's slowly going down. It's, it's, not, it's not as once dominating as it may once have been. But one of the key factors, church, is once an applicant country meets the conditions for membership, it must implement EU rules and regulations in all areas of business and, and political transactions. And since the Roman Empire, like uh, back in Jesus' day, no single leader has been able to control the known world, although many have tried, like Hitler. So with the emergence of the EU, the political and the, and the political and economic agenda is the perfect storm for a leader who wants to form a new world empire. So here's what I expect to happen, friends, as we watch this happen. You, do you remember that Britain, don't you, it's significant now, there, there was 28, seven countries today there were 28 countries out of, as of 2016, and Britain pulled out. Mm -hmm. They exited Bre the Brexit in 2016 to pull out of the EU. <laughs> and so I am good, uh, you and I can expect that as time goes mm -hmm. on, the, the EU is going to get down to 10 kings, or 10, 10 rulers, and, uh, and, and, and maybe even 10, uh, maybe somehow an somehow amalgamation of like maybe 10 of the European nations. I don't know exactly how it's going to be, but we know there's going to be ten kings <coughs> ruling this, and the Antichrist will emerge out of these ten kings to dominate Europe. Now what's interesting, friends, is in Israel, which was part of the original Roman Empire, is not allowed in the EU today. Do you know why? They're considered to be human rights violators because of their occupation of the Golan Heights in the West Bank. That again, this is crazy, right? E they're not allowed to be part of the EU because of their human rights violations of occupation of these two territories. And it's interesting too that Daniel describes these, this, this final empire as being mixed with clay and iron because I suggest what this represents is st instability. Because clay and, clay and iron can't mix, right? It would just fall apart. But it represents instability. Now think about it. Within Europe, there's different different nationalities, different political agendas, different religious beliefs, 
different languages making up this empire. This is going to be a coalition of ten with different languages and different, uh, uh, different religious viewpoints and all sorts of things. And so it's going to be brittle in that sense. So yeah, I mean, it's, uh, these, as I watch the final times, I mean, yeah, yes, we can look at earthquakes and famines and things, but I'm watching for the reemergence of the, uh, the Roman Empire with the, uh, um, this, the, this decreasing uh, leadership within the states and this more and more sort of like more and more nations joining it to create this bigger empire. Can I ask a question? Yeah. Like lots of times in history, and especially in the Bible, when it talks about the world, it meant the world like of the Middle East, kind of. Yes. So, and I hear you talking about, you know, that Europe. So how does that affect, like, Australia, where we live, and all that stuff? Are we to be watching over there, or because of the nature of the way war would work, for instance, or the way economy works now? Does that, where, where do the other big countries yeah. and continents play in? Great question. Uh, so at this point, I, I'm only guessing, and I, and I don't have a strong biblical answer for that. I've been wrestling through that myself for, for a long time, especially this last week, because the Bible makes no mention of, uh, of the United States or Great Britain or any of these other nations in which are, are, are could be players in the end times. The whole thing is focused on the Middle East. So I would say this, that... Uh, in terms of the end times, the focus and all of the major events will take place in the Middle East and especially focus on Israel as a nation. So we're going to find out pretty quick here, like in the next section, that the Antichrist will actually live in Jerusalem. Okay? So he'll, he'll arise out of the Roman Empire, but he will eventually reside in Jerusalem. And there's reasons for that we're going to see. So I would say this, that the, the, in terms of the world events and the major players, Everything is going to primarily transpire there. But we know from other passages that he talks about overpowering the saints and about his world agenda. So what will happen over time is that his, his tyranny will spread to the rest of the world and somehow he'll have ways of controlling that. And you think about that. There's GPS. There's, uh, I mean, there's, you, can't, you can't even hide. I, I just went the other day, uh, I looked up my house for something and I saw a picture of my car outside of my house. At some point, the satellite took a picture of my home. So one, one common currency, tracking. Like people think the mark of the beast is going to be some kind of like tattoo in your forehead, like Marilyn Manson had or something. It's probably going to be a computer chip. Just put it into your skin. They already have that for dogs and so on and so forth. They could track them. So I think, Laurel, to your question, the focus will primarily be the Middle East, but it will spill over into the rest of the world. But the Bible gives us no from my opinion anyway, because there's nothing about the Western countries and how it plays out. Well, and the UN has a lot more of those bigger countries, so maybe somehow yeah. they would fit into the European yeah. Union. Yeah. Yeah. Something. Andrew, I just, I think I missed something. Where did you get that it was going to be the Roman Empire? Yeah, so in, uh, so in Daniel chapter 2, um, yeah, we'll just go, actually, I'll, I didn't speak about this, so let's just quickly look at this together. Look at, starting at verse uh, 36. Right, are you there? Okay, uh, Megan? Okay, mm -hmm. look at verse 37, actually. It says, You, O king, are the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and glory. And whenever, wherever the sons of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, or the birds of the sky, he has given them into your hand, and caused you to rule over them. You are the head of gold. He's speaking to Nebuchadnezzar, which is the king of Babylon. 
Then in 39, he said that after you will rise another king inferior to you, then another third kingdom of bronze. Now, again, later on, you find out that the first 39 is referring to Medo-Persia, but then the king of bronze in verse 39 is, uh, is going to be um, Greece. And this is defined later in Daniel. But then in verse 40, he says, there'll be a fourth kingdom as strong as iron, insomuch as iron crushes iron and shatters all things. And then later on, we find out this is Rome. So Rome, in, in Jesus' day, was in power and slowly was dismantled. And then it continues on in 42 to speak of this Rome having toes of feet and pottery and mixed of like, like ten, 10 toes. So it, he continues on in the thoughts of Rome and doesn't ever sway from that country. And it's only in through interpreting chapter 7 and so on and so forth that we see this occurring. Okay, so he goes, he names the countries, um, or he, he mentions the countries and then and goes through it in, in order. And it doesn't say what the self-clay is. No, it doesn't. You know, so it, it's Daniel 7 that helps you interpret these things. Um, it helps you understand that these are the nations in order. Okay? Yeah, makes sense. Yeah. All right. So I'm just going to finish today with going to the Antichrist and a little bit in the tribulation, and then the next time we'll talk about where the day of the Lord fits in and all these types of things, okay? So what's the Antichrist going to be like? And we're going to have to do some Bible flipping, and, uh, and you're going to have to move along with me fairly quickly. All right. Back to Daniel 7. Uh, he will be a Gentile. People think, will he be Jewish? No, he'll be a Gentile. They'll come out of a ten-king coalition, Daniel 7, 24. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings will arise, and another will rise after him, and he will be different than the previous ones, and will subdue three kings. Um, so we see him coming out of the Roman Empire and, and, and emerging out of there. I would suggest that he will come into power subtly and peacefully. You know, even, even in history, that's the way it happens. Like, Hitler didn't come into power like this raging tyrant. He worked his way through the ranks and just emerged. And if you look at the way he comes here, there's ten kings in power, and he emerges from amongst the ten kings. So he's probably mixing in with them, and slowly over time sees his opportunity to, to rise into power. There's no, there's no um, thoughts here of him coming in uh, through violence, and he'll kind of attract little attention initially. Uh, I mean, even in Daniel 7 8, it says this, When I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little one, came up among them, and three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots. So he comes up, and it's sort of like it's out of nowhere. And that's, that's typical of a lot of world dictators. Now, he may, he may not come in that way, but the language seems to suggest that. But more importantly, I think he'll come as a political genius. It'll be a political genius. Um, it says in Daniel 7, 8, and 24, notice that he'll take over three kingdoms. He'll take, out, he'll take over three kings. So there's a ten-king coalition, but he'll subdue three kings. Whether he does it by persuasion, or he gets them to submit to him and give him over his power, or maybe he does it violently, I don't know. But whatever, he's got this ability to persuade or to, to take over three other kings who are already in power. And I suggest that he'll be able to solve the Israeli-Arab conflict that no one's been able to solve. He'll solve the Arab-Israeli conflict. Why would I say that? Because in Daniel 9.27, we see him make a seven-year peace treaty with Israel. A seven-year peace treaty with Israel. 
And if you look at the news, look what's happening. Everyone's trying to get peace in the Middle East and can't accomplish it. But he's going to probably uh, solve this seven-year conflict or this conflict in seven years. Look at 9:27 with me. Uh, just so you know, actually, in verse 24, it says, 70 weeks have been decreed for your people. In the Bible, in this context, a week is a reference to seven years. It's, there's so much to like go through, but just trust me on that, that this is referring to seven years. A week is seven years. And in verse 27, he says this, and, and he will make a firm covenant with many for one week. This is referring to Israel. But in the middle of the week, he will pull, put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering, and on the wing of abominations, he will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction. Again, that's, that's abominations and desolation. That, that sounds familiar, right? In Matthew 24, 15. He says, you will see the abomination of desolation stand in the holy place. In Matthew. So here we have this guy making a peace treaty with Israel for seven years. Now, interesting though, he will break it at three and a half years. It says there that he'll make, in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice. Now, someone might say, well, that's pretty, you're, you're kind of stretching that verse. Um, listen to Revelation 13.5. Revelation 13.5, speaking of the Antichrist. This is incredible. It says, um, there was a, given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies, and authority to act for 42 months was given to him. Have the authority to act for 42 months. I just did the math, and if you go with 3.5 times 12, you get 45. And uh, before it, it says that the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast, and they worshipped the dragon because he gave authority to the beast. So here's the point, church. Daniel says it's a one year or a one week, seven year peace treaty, but at 3.5 years, he'll break the treaty. And, uh, and in De Revelation 13.5 says that's, the, that's when he'll have power to reign for 42 months. So here's, he will cut, he'll make the peace treaty right here. Uh, this is called peace treaty. <laughs> so I actually get Stuart to write this again. He'll make this peace treaty right here at the beginning of seven years and do nothing for three and a half years in terms of acts of aggression in the world. The Christians will be fine, the Jews will be fine, and no, he won't demand worship. He'll just be, he'll be functioning in this peace treaty, and people will be believing this guy's amazing because he saw something that no one else in the world has ever been able to do. No one can solve peace in the Middle East. This guy's going to be able to do it. But at 3.5 years, this mark here, he's going to break his peace treaty with Israel and go haywire for three and a half years. And this is called the Great Tribulation. So the seven, in the Bible, we, they refer to the Tribulation as seven years. But to be truthful, the, it's only the, three point, the last half of the, the 3.5 that's actually the Tribulation. It's called the Great Tribulation. And he's going to break his treaty according to Revelation 13.5 and, and Daniel 9.27. Now, did you notice something really fascinating there in this verse in 9.27? Let's listen to this. He'll make a firm covenant, but in the middle he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. So, uh, what's going on in Jerusalem during the time of the Antichrist? Yeah, a reinstatement of the Levitical priesthood. Right? So I had a conversation with Dan this Wednesday, uh, last Wednesday, and just like we always do, we go toe-to-toe -to -toe on the scripture and we kind of play, we kind of like sort of Fun, in a fun way, argue against each other and kind of like try to put each other in a corner. 
And at the whole, after an hour and a half of discussion about this, he, you, Dan says to me, the one thing, Andrew, that you said to me that was a very interesting to me that I never thought of before was this reinstitution of the Levitical priesthood. He goes, if you can prove that to me, uh, I, I'd be very curious about that. So I went online last night to Tim Hortons, and I found an artic a few articles, and I'm going to quote from an article from Israel Today. <coughs> and there's YouTube videos associated with these uh, websites too, okay? This is the headline of the, of the, of the uh, article. School for Temple Priests opens in Jerusalem. The Temple Institute has announced the opening of a school to train descendants of the tribe of Levi for their eventual return to service in the third temple. <laughs> we, quote, we are extremely excited to announce this new step towards the restoration of the Holy Temple service. We call first and foremost upon the Levitical priests worldwide to support this special project, which signifies a return to their birthright, read a statement from Temple Institute Director Rabbi Rikman. In a separate comment, Rabbi Rikman noted that the preparation for the temple is no longer a dream, it's a reality in which everyone can play a part. Uh, <laughs> again, warning signs. They're built, they want to rebuild a third temple, and they want to, they're already practicing for Levitical priesthood in Jerusalem. And I found an article and a video of them celebrating their first Passover meal as if they did it back in Exodus. And they talked about, it was kind of a messy, gory event, but it was like, you know, because imagine all the slaughtering of the lambs they had to do. But they're practicing this in Israel right now for the reinstatement of the sacrifices. And what does Daniel say? He will put a stop to sacrifice. Because at a peace treaty with Israel, they'll say, go ahead, Jews, live, out your, live your Jewish life. Live it out. Like, do whatever you want. And this is why he's going to be so charismatic and influential. And he's going to say, at three and a half years, I'm done with you. No more. So again, look at the, read the, think of the warning signs in the history. If, if you were to tell my grandfather, who wrote a, my grandfather wrote a book this thick on the end times. I, I've been reading it. And, he, and he, nowhere in his book is he talking about sort of like uh, the reality of a Levitical priesthood being active in his day in the 70s. <laughs> and here we have in 2017, this article um, was just written, just written. And you can, there's hundreds of articles, not hundreds, but there's, there's a few, few articles that I found just quickly on Google last night, all from newspapers or websites from Israel. Uh, the Antichrist, according to Daniel 11.36, will be extremely persuasive, charismatic, and influential, and be an amazing orator. Aren't they all? I mean, you hear Mussolini speak, you hear Hitler speak. I mean, they were masters of, of, uh, of, their, of their words. Uh, we'll leave that. But he'll also be extremely arrogant, extremely arrogant. In chapter 7, verse 8 of Daniel, it says that he will be a man who mouth, whose mouth utters great boasts. So he'll be extremely, extremely arrogant. But more, more importantly for us, He'll be strongly opposed to God, and he'll speak out against God. He'll be extremely uh, adamant about that. Look at 7.23 in Daniel. Uh, sorry, uh, 7.25. Uh, he will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the Highest One, and he will intend to make alterations in times and law, and they will be given into his hand for a time, times and times a half. And that's, again, a reference to three and a half years. I'll read you 2 Thessalonians now. Chapter 4 to get a description of this guy. Or 2 Thessalonians, I think it's chapter 2. 
This is a description of him in uh, 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 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 3. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. So he'll set himself up, another point, as in the temple and demand to be worshipped. He'll demand it. And um, anyone who refuses that will be killed. And again, his focus will be Jews and Christians. And if you want those cross-references, I've got about three or four that shows himself setting himself in the temple. We saw one in Daniel, here one in Thessalonians, and, uh, and actually in Matthew 24 as well. So he, when the temple is, again, these Jews are practicing for the reinstitution of the third temple, right? The third temple, because it's still not fully restored compared to what it was in Daniel's, or in um, Jesus' time with Herod. They're practicing for the priesthood. He will, this temple will be built, either by the Jews or by him, I don't know, in, the, in this peace treaty time. And uh, he will then step in and set himself up as God in the temple and take the seat and desecrate it. That's the reference to the abomination of desolation in Matthew 24, 15. One other thing, though, friends, is that he will control the world's economics. Revelation 13, 16. I'll read you 11, 13, 16. And he causes all, the small and the great, and the rich and the poor, and the free men and the slaves, to be given a mark on their right hand or on their forehead, and he provides that no one will be able to buy or sell except the one who has the mark, either the name of the beast or the number of his name. I don't know about you, but sometimes I had it backwards. I used to think the mark of the beast was to, as a, a way of identifying you were against the Antichrist. The mark of the beast is actually for those who belong to the Antichrist. So the person that, that, um, that it, in other words, you will be, there will be no mark if you don't belong to him, which will identify you. And he says, you won't be able to buy or sell. So he's going to control the world's economics and have a say in terms of who can do what and where they can do it. And so um, uh, this is going to be something to look for. And technology today will allow for that. It'll allow for that. Another one, he'll, he'll perform incredible miracles. Incredible miracles. Uh, in Second Thessalonians, back there, in chapter 2, verse 9, Listen to what he'll do. It says, uh, he says, yeah, he's coming in accord with the activity of Satan, and he will, with all power and signs and false wonders, come. He's going to come with power and signs and false wonders. And in Revelation 13, 7, um, or sorry, in 13, 3, it appears that he fakes a death and resurrection. In chapter, Revelation 13, 3, he seems to, fake a death and resurrection, but what it does is the whole world is amazed and follows after him and they worship him. So whatever he does in terms of these miracles will do it. And it makes sense. I mean, I watched like Chris Angel or like these like David Copperfield. I mean, when you watch this stuff with these magicians on TV, I mean, tell me you're not like absolutely amazed and you believe everything they're doing is real and true. I mean, it's just so incredible. It's not going to take much for a guy who's empowered by Satan, who's demonically indwelt by Satan to be able to to do things on the name of God and, and, and act in these ways. But the world is going to fall for his signs and wonders, and everything he's claiming verbally will be affirmed by the miracles that he's doing, and people will believe in him. But the most important thing for us, church, is going to be defeated. <laughs> he's going to be defeated. 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 8 says that he'll be defeated by Christ. And in Matthew 24, uh, 
29, we see that he's the Son of Man is going to come the day of the Lord. And Daniel 2.44 and Daniel 7.26, we see that Christ's kingdom, this millennial kingdom, will defeat him at the Battle of Armageddon. He'll be defeated at the Battle of Armageddon. There is a, a lot more to be said. Um, I'll leave you with, uh, I, I think that's enough. It's heavy stuff and it's like crazy to think about. So you can see maybe while I was exhausted after five days of study, um, my plan was to do the whole thing and I was like, I can't even like wrap my head around some of these things. Also, there's so much detail that I don't know and that I need to work on before I teach you because I know I'm responsible for preaching truth to you. But I do want to present to you the three, oper- the three positions in the church to finish off the sermon or the message about when is Jesus coming back in this whole period. And, uh, and I'll introduce you to three terms that you, you, some of you will be familiar with and some of you won't. Hopefully one of these markers will work for me. Purple or blue. Oh. It's okay. There we go. Okay. Um, there's something called, pre, uh, there's three positions on when this day of the Lord is going to occur. There's something called pre-tribulation, mid-tribulation, and post-tribulation. The majority of people that I was trained by, or discipled by, uh, in Okotoks, and, and a lot of the, the people like John MacArthur, uh, David Jeremiah, hold to a position that the day of the Lord is a pre-tribulation rapture of the church. So that first Thessalonians 4 passage we did last week, when the dead rise from the grave and they meet Christ in the air, they believe that at the pre-tribulation, the day of the Lord occurs right here. And this, the rapture of the church occurs, and every Christian in the world is taken out of the world at this moment. And that event starts the tribulation because everybody in the world is going, what happened to all the Christians? And that's going to tr- promote this huge gospel like explosion. And people are going to come to Christ in droves here because of, we're not the Christians. I thought I was a Christian, but I'm not gone, so what, what's going on? And so the pre-tribulation is that the, the, the day of the Lord is a rapture. It's called the rapture of the church. But then, that's to be defined separately from his second coming. His second coming then still occurs here at Armageddon when he defeats the Antichrist and his armies. So the rapture of the church is 1 Thessalonians 4, which is called pre-tribulation, before the tribulation. <coughs> the second coming, he comes and defeats Antichrist at Armageddon. Mid-tribulation believes this. Well, it's probably obvious that we enter as Christians into the tribulation period in a time of peace when Antichrist turns on the church and turns on the Jews. At that point, the day of the Lord, the rapture of the church, 1 Thessalonians 4, comes and takes the uh, church out. And then only the, the, like the people who are non-Christians who turn to Christ will be persecuted in this time. And then the second coming is a separate event in which he will come and destroy Israel or destroy uh, the Antichrist. The post-tribulation view is that we go through the tribulation, both peace and through the tribulation, and the day of the Lord is the second coming and rapture as one event. So the, the church is raptured out, we all go to glory, and at that same time, Christ comes with his armies and defeats the enemy Christ. Okay? So you've got, um, I'll just put down pre, mid, and post. Okay? These are the three positions. And so you've got one right here, you've got two right here, and you've got three right here. As of a week ago, I was a pre-trip guy. 
after studying the uh, scriptures, I don't, I don't, I, I just can't see that anymore. <laughs> and there's a, there's a couple of reasons why, and I don't know where I land in these yet, but let me give you my supportive texts and, uh, and, and give you them. So let, let me just give you two, one in particular. I want you to read Matthew 24 again. And I could change Naz of next week. Okay, so uh, th this is a suggestion, but uh, this is something I have to contextually work through. We'll finish with this comment. Look at, uh, look at okay, Matthew 24.4 gives you all the warning signs, right? Daniel 2 gives you the history of the Roman Empire. Now look at this, what he says in verse 15. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation was spoken of to Daniel the prophet, let the reader understand. So in 15, we have the Antichrist in presence, in power. But in verse 17 on, it talks about flee from him, flee, like, like it's going to, hell is going to break loose in Israel. That's the second half of the tribulation, right? That's the three and a half years in the end, the latter days. Then look what happens in 29. But immediately after the tribulation, in those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds, the sky, in the sky, with great power and glory. In that verse, we have the same wordage as 1 Thessalonians 4. It says there, he's coming on the trumpet, he's coming in the clouds with his angels and with a trumpet. And here we have the day of the Lord described in Matthew 24 as coming after the tribulation. Now, I know that MacArthur and, and guys like that and some of my mentors and people will, will get around that and say it's a separate event. And it may very well be. The problem is, I don't see anything in the Old Testament giving two descriptions of the day of the Lord being two separate events. Because if the rapture of the church, that, that's a pretty major thing in the world's history. It doesn't, it doesn't define the day of the Lord differently as the second coming in any, in any way. It seems like the same language all the time. So at this pr present time, I probably land as a post Millennials, or yeah, a post post millennials, because of scriptures like Matthew 24. But again, uh, I could be persuaded if I had other texts. But at this point, if I go in order of how Matthew's written, I mean, it seems to come after the tribulation and not before it. So, so after the second coming, the second coming is the day of the Lord. Is the same thing. Is when the church is raptured. Yes. Okay. But again, like, say that, say that again, what you just said. Yeah, the second coming. Is the, the, there's no such thing as the second coming in the Bible. Like, it, it's our version of, that's what we call it, the day of the Lord. That's what it's always called in scriptures. It's the rapture of the church. The rapture of the church is the day of the Lord, and Christ comes down at the same time and fights the army. So we'd be, we wouldn't be fighting. Well, I, that's for next time. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but again, like don't like this. Like you have to understand. Like I'm re I'm going through like thousands of verses and crazy stuff. Like I'm I'm holding loosely to that right now because up till like I said a week ago, I'd have been a pre-tribulation guy. So just just know that. But I I've got a lot more work to do. But I just I when I go through these passages in Matthew, if they are two separate events, I can't see it text-wise, proof-wise, in the scriptures. Surely the Old Testament would talk about the rapture and the second coming of Christ to the Mount of Olives as, as in, in, very, in two separate details. And maybe they do, I just haven't discovered it yet. <laughs>